The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live, our daily webcast and podcast. I'm Alex Ewell, Deputy Editor of Barron's. Thanks for joining us again today for our latest update on tech. I'm joined by my colleague, Eric Savitz, Barron's Associate Editor who covers tech for us from Silicon Valley. Hey, Eric, welcome. Hey, Alex. So, you know, we're in this uh, bit of an odd month period for tech. We've had this banner year for tech stocks. The NASDAQ has run into the reality of September, which is often bad for stocks. Um, I think that combined with a resume, a resuming rise in yields has really hurt tech. The NASDAQ is off 7% this month. Um, so now we're at this point of, you know, what 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 do we what do we think about tech? Is this just a, a seasonal thing? Is this a bigger issue? Uh, and I thought we could spend some time talking about that today. Um, you know, it's worth noting. I think the last three months of the year tend to be better for stocks, so that may be working in tech's favor. Um, and uh, you know, there there also there's a, there's more around AI. There's government regulation. Then there's the start of third quarter earnings season in a few weeks. All of these have the potential to uh, potentially get the tech rally moving again or or, or continue this recent uh, decline. So uh, I don't think you and I can say too much about seasonal impacts for the market. You know, so I, yeah. think- I, I do think it's before we get into some of the details there, I, I do think it's worth mentioning, right, of course, that tech had a fantastic first half. Yes. Right? So, so after a terrible last year, tech yeah. stocks went like, you know, when 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 nuclear in the first half and so fantastic returns year to date returns despite you know as you say kind of a crummy september um are still really good for you know if you if you finish the year where we are right now um you'd have a really good year for tech and you know with with in some cases triple digit returns for a large cap uh for some large cap names so um, you know, like all things are relative. Like, let's keep that in perspective. And and I do think it is true that you know, you know, last year, of course, tech was plagued by the spike in interest rates and the Fed's aggressive uh, tightening um, cycle. And there was some hope this year that we, you know, this was going to wind down and maybe we'd start to see some uh, rate cuts. And that just does not seem to be on the table. And you know you're seeing that in 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 what's happened in in um, in the bond market, and and then that is directly affecting uh, tech stock valuations as it did last year. It's like sort of shades of the same story. I think the other thing, and we'll, we'll, I know we're going to talk about AI a little more in, in a moment, but I would also note that one thing that's happened on AI, um, you know, which by the way is still really less less than a year old if you start the the sort of uh, mania with the launch of ChatGPT last uh, November 30th. So we're, you know, we're like 10 months into this um, storyline. Um, uh, but one thing that's happened is some of the companies that have made a big play here um, are, are, you know, they're working a lot. And they're rearranging their business models to make this work. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Opus Energy Insights on Barron's Live. I'm Denton Sinkerbrana, Chief Oil Analyst at Opus, a Dow Jones company. My guests today are my colleagues, journalist Jessica Marin and Global Head of Energy Analysis, Tom Ploza. 
both from Opus, obviously. And this week, we're going to be previewing the winter heating season and looking at kind of three key fuels, heating oil, natural gas, and propane. Uh, while most of us think we only use propane for our barbecue grills during the summertime, it's actually a, a pretty key heating fuel. It's also used in some industrial applications as well. So, and it does, it's a pretty unique fuel in that it intersects both with crude oil and natural gas. So welcome Jessica and Tom, and thank you for both taking the time to, to join Barron's Live today. Thank you. Thank you. So we're going to start with uh, the impact crude oil is having on these fuels. So uh, Jessica, OPEC Plus has, has cut production. Uh, Saudi Arabia has announced that they're earlier this month, continuing their unilateral 1 million barrel a day cut through the end of the year. So how does that impact propane and the supply? Um, well, in terms of supply, it tends to be uh, more an indirect impact on propane. Um, when global crude oil production falls, naturally propane production is going to fall as well. But the key here is where these cuts are taking place. Um, namely largely Middle Eastern countries, uh, whereas U.S. supply, most of the propane comes from domestically produced crude. Uh, now, the Middle East, like the U.S., is a, a major supplier of propane and butane to Asian markets, and the U.S. could be called on to kind of fill in some gaps if Middle Eastern propane exports fall. Um, and I will say our export terminals are already very heavily utilized. So at the moment, there's only so much extra uh, that we could push out. Um, now, when it comes to price, uh, propane does tend to follow the, the benchmark crude pricing in terms of general direction. Um, but what we're seeing is that propane just hasn't risen to the same degree that crude oil has. Um, there's a, a key industry uh, metric um, that measures propane as a percentage to crude oil price-wise. Um, this year, propane prices are roughly 30 to 35 percent that of crude, uh, whereas last year it was about 50 percent, and this is more an average level. Mm -hmm. um, so compared to crude, propane is, uh, the value of propane is significantly weaker. Um, on an outright basis, on, on the wholesale level, prices are about, uh, about 65 to 80 cents per gallon in Gulf Coast and Midwest. Um, our Opus Forward dated pricing is showing kind of similar levels for the winter, um, whereas last year uh, prices were about 90 cents to a dollar per gallon. So a bit of a difference. So basically, if you're heating your home with propane, you have the potential for a bit of a break this year versus last year. Uh, to, I, I would say to some degree, um, I mean, the, the one issue is that um, this upcoming winter is projected to be normal to colder than normal. And last year we had a significantly warmer than normal winter. So there could potentially be uh, some uptick in heating bills just because of the sheer fact that we're going to be using more propane than last year. Uh, I've seen estimates, uh, I believe, around $1,500 per household from an industry organization. And that's about 4% uh, higher than last year. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Well, Tom, it's pretty obvious what the uh, impacts of, of lower or higher crude oil prices and lower production have done on diesel. But what does it mean for supplies as, we are, as we're approaching the wintertime? Well, I think it's very worrisome 
for uh, heating oil, and it's worrisome for diesel. Uh, you know, one of the problems with the OPEC plus cuts was that they cut medium and heavy crude oil, which tend to be very distillate rich, and distillate is heating oil and, and diesel. And so we had a situation a couple of weeks ago where we're running 700,000 barrels a day more crude than we were in 2022, and yet we're making less uh, diesel and less heating oil for the Northeast. So it's a problem. Uh, it was a problem last year. We got to Thanksgiving time and you heard all sorts of stories about perhaps running out of diesel or heating oil. And we were rescued by the warmest winter in probably two generations. So I'm very, very concerned about it. I think that we could see parabolic moves for diesel and for heating oil. You know, this morning, uh, heating oil and diesel are selling for about 90 cents a gallon more than gasoline. And that tells you all you need to know. The refinery runs that we're processing, the kind of crude we have now, tend to yield a little bit too much gasoline and not enough of the middle of the barrel. And it's the middle of the barrel that people use to eat their homes. Well, speaking of refining, this is the time of year we enter the refinery maintenance season. Uh, it's starting to ramp up. You see it in the Energy Information Administration data this past week. Um, how does the maintenance season stack up to, to years past? And what's that impact going to be on the on the winter fuels markets? You know, bottom line is we don't have as much refining maintenance as we saw last year when some things were put off. But it's kind of the mother of all maintenance seasons in North America on the East Coast. Uh, I know there's a graphic that shows this, but if you look back 10 or 12 years ago, and we had two other refineries in Canada and a number of refineries up in the Delaware River that are no longer in operation. We would run about 1.7 million barrels a day of crude oil. Now we're running about 630 in the United States. We've got the Pennsylvania refinery operated by Delta Airlines is down. And the Irving refinery in the Canadian Maritimes is at half speed. So I'm worried about it. I don't think we're going to be able to accumulate inventories in the next 60 days. And then it's going to be all about the weather. Uh, but I do believe, unfortunately, that we could see parabolic moves for heating oil, for diesel, for jet fuel, and also for kerosene. Can you talk a little bit more about the kerosene uh, aspect? Yeah, kerosene is kind of an orphan product. You know, we don't think about it much, but it's very, very low sulfur. It's a little bit difficult for wineries to make. And it really is the product that serves people at, on the margins of, of society. You know, folks that live in the trailer camps and some of the adult villages up in upstate New York and so forth. So it, it can, you know, be quite consequential uh, if you have a cold winter. It's just not the kind of product that many refineries uh, concentrate on making. So we've got about 1.2 million barrels of kerosene in storage which is fine for the threshold of October. It's not fine going into December and January uh, when you've got a lot of kerosene heaters that are used for the people who are, you know, basically uh, uh, at the prey of cold weather. So it's a problem. Okay. I did want to follow up on, on some of the refining questions here. And we've seen a lot of reports and, and chatter about international refineries, new international refining capacity coming online uh, as we speak. Uh, 
are they going to come to the rescue as far as diesel supplies or distillate and heating oil supplies are concerned? No, they're not. And there's been some really bad publicity or, or some premature extrapolations on that. I mean, the Kuwait refinery in Alzwar is a producing diesel and heating oil that can be used by the States or in Europe. But you'll hear talk about the Nigerian refinery, which will be 650,000 barrels a day. They will not be making any molecules for this winter. And the same thing is true for the Mexican refinery in Das Bocas. There's a lot of uh, different announcements about they're going to start running crude, but it will not be furnishing any supply uh, in all likelihood this winter. So we're going to have to make do with what we have. And Europe has the same problem that we have. Uh, they were rescued last year by that mild winter, uh, and they didn't have the problems with natural gas or heating oil. If you get a normal winter or a colder than normal winter, I'm afraid that, you know, last year was cry wolf and this year the wolf is at the door. Yeah, yeah. Uh, also, I want to remind everyone tuning in that it's just about 1210. So if you have any questions to submit in the live Q&A, uh, you can start doing that right now. But Jessica, we're heading into the cooler weather. Uh, how does the supply of propane look right now from a from kind of a historical standpoint? Where do inventories stand? And then also I'd follow that up with, uh, you know, propane's an industrial fuel as well, and it's popular in crop drying. Are there any hints at what demand for crop drying is going to be like this this fall and early winter? Uh, well, to address your first question, um, you know, it's a very different situation. Um, supplies of propane are, you know, let's put it mildly, excellent in the United States. Um, as of September 22nd, um, stocks were nationwide a little over 101 million barrels. Uh, to put that into perspective, there have only been two other times uh, that stocks have been higher for propane on record. Um, there were two weeks in the fall of 2020, which was a pandemic year, and back in November of 2015. Um, at the time that all-time record was hit, it was just below 103 million barrels. So we're not that far off that peak. And there's typically a couple more weeks uh, where we can still be building uh, propane stocks. Um, and uh, just to give uh, another data point, this 101 million barrels in storage, that's approximately 124 days of supply uh, on hand even if we don't have, you know, further increases in production. Wow, that's uh, uh, good. Yeah. Uh, turning to crop drying, um, propane demand can rise in the autumn um, if we've had a wet summer kind of in the heartland of the U.S. Um, it's used to power big industrial dryers that will dry out the corn, wheat, uh, soybeans before they get stored and shipped onto wherever they go. Uh, at most, that demand is typically about 200,000 barrels per day, um, but we're not seeing much demand on that front this year. We have had a very hot, very dry summer out in the Midwest. Um, this means that crops are going to, by and large, dry naturally in the field before they're harvested. Um, we, we, we still may see some propane demand to dry out the crops, but it's going to be minimal at best, I believe. It's probably maybe a little bit below average. Yes. Gotcha. Gotcha. So we haven't spent too much time on natural gas so far, but, you know, 
Tom, what do we need to be on the lookout for when it comes to natural gas? I mean, in the U.S., we're kind of blessed with really cheap natural gas and abundant natural gas. Europe, not so much. And, uh, you know, there's plenty of fears heading into last winter. Where do we stand this winter heading into this winter? We're in a lot better shape in, uh, in Europe and in the United States and even in the Far East. I mean, last year you had a lot of substitution of diesel or heating oil for natural gas because the prices of natural gas last fall went up anywhere be to the equivalent of between $300 and $600 a barrel oil. So we don't have that situation, but what I worry about is a colder than normal winter. And there's not a lot of natural gas that's stored downstream, so to speak. You know, there, there's the price that you see at the Henry Hub for natural gas at the Gulf Coast. And then there are the city gate prices, you know, in the Northeast and the upper Midwest. And, and here's the problem. When you get a cluster of degree days, let's say between Thanksgiving and Valentine's Day, uh, many times there's just not enough natural gas downstream to handle that. And so you have curtailments. And those curtailments mean that people can, that can use dual fuel, casinos in New Jersey, for example, can burn diesel or heating oil instead of natural gas when they get curtailed. When that happens, the stuff flies out of the wholesale terminals. And that basically means that people are using diesel for peak shaving to make electricity or they're using it in lieu of natural gas because homeowners can't be cut off, but industry can. So there's always that threat. And I would say that threat arrives between Thanksgiving and uh, uh, Valentine's Day. We had a couple of curtailments last year, but it was really probably for 24 or 48 hours when Winter Storm Elliott came on Christmas weekend. And by the way, that was another issue last year where uh, Christmas weekend saw Winter Storm Elliott, which really sent U.S. refining down for the count. You know, fortunately, we had a warm winter and we never had to sort of pay the piper for those problems uh, that came with the cold temperatures. And as you can see on the on the slide that we have presented right here, it's the supply of, of distillate in the Central Atlantic and New England. So the market structure right now for heating oil, how does it contribute to that kind of crisis atmosphere you've been describing a little bit? Well, yeah, I mean, right now, heating oil and diesel fetch about $140 versus, uh, you know, a $90 price for crude. $160 out in the West Coast, by the way, where it's not used for heating. But the problem is, is that the prices uh, a month out and 60 days out, the market is what they call very backwardated, which is to say that uh, it's much, much cheaper as you go out. That encourages companies not to store oil. In the old days, you had major oil companies that would bring cargos in and store them for the possibility that you could have a cold winter. Nowadays, the market is much more cutthroat, much more capitalistic, and you don't have that happen. So I would submit that inventories are frightened, frighteningly low. I also would suggest that we've lost a lot of storage in the Northeast because it's been repurposed. You know, you pass a place on the waterfront that has tanks to store heating oil. Well, that could be much, much more valuable if it's developed for general real estate. And we've lost a lot of tanks in the Central Atlantic and New England in the last five years. 
And then to, you know, kind of kind of follow up on that, um, interest rates, high interest rates, the cost of store, is that playing a role too? And, you know, you mentioned that inventories are not building back up because of the backwardation. The cost yeah, of store, it, it, interest rates, do that have, does that impact it as well? Yeah, it's very dangerous. The cost of carrying product and, and paying the interest rates on it. You know, I mean, we had free money for essentially three or four years. Now it's not free. It's probably 7% or more if you're carrying inventory. So there is not that incentive to carry inventory. And that's frightening. Again, I think that if we have a colder than normal winter, people will be looking and they'll be saying, how could we let this happen? And there's really, you know, no blame to be fixed. It's just the problem of modern day volatility and prices. Right. So, um, Jessica, you, you mentioned really high propane inventories. Let's talk about propane production. And one thing I did notice in the EIA data this past week is that uh, exports of propane and propylene just smashed all previous records, like not even close. Uh, is that just a sign of things to come as it, as it pertains to, you know, kind of U.S. U.S. production and U.S. exports of propane? You know, you mentioned earlier that the Middle East might might see some impact. Is that where some of those barrels could be headed? I, I not to the Middle East. Um, I guess to address the um, the export record, um, when it comes to the EIA data, um, yes, on paper that you know two million barrels per day they reported. Uh, on paper, that is a record, um, but the numbers reported by the EIA can be prone to weekly swings, and this has been going on in the industry for years. Um, EIA releases their export numbers based, uh, I mean, there's a number of factors, but largely it's based on uh, customs data. And there can be kind of timing disparities between when a ship leaves, when it gets logged, when it gets reported to the EIA. Uh, so most people that I speak with on the propane trading front, they look at the four-week average of exports as kind of a better gauge. Um, Last week, that was about 1.6 million barrels per day. Um, that is definitely high, high from a historical perspective, but it isn't the highest that we've ever been. That was, I think the record was probably closer to 1.8 million uh, back in June, July. Um, I think longer term, yes, we can keep, we can expect exports to keep increasing to new records. Um, we are seeing, you know, tons of demand coming from China, from India. Uh, China especially has is having a massive boom in petrochemical development, and that will draw out more supplies from the U.S. And that's where the Middle East comes in. They will also they can also supply the Asian markets, um, but at the same time, we have a lot of production. You know, a lot of it's from the Permian Basin in West Texas. That's been a really big up and coming uh, hub for production. And we've seen refiner and blender production of propane running pretty steadily the past few months at about 2.6 million barrels per day. And that's the most that we've ever produced in the U.S. Is there any potential for even higher levels? I think I think so. Um, I don't have estimates offhand, but... Right. EIA is definitely seeing incremental growth just going going steadily up over the next few years. Right, right. And again, I guess, you know, economics will dictate if refiners 
you know, try and make more propane and et cetera, like they do, they tilt it to more gasoline or more diesel or more jet fuel, like they, like they can do, you can switch it a couple percentage points here and there. So, but I did want to, you know, just kind of ask you both of you one more question before we kind of, kind of open it up to, to questions here, but Jessica, any wild cards that you see out there that could impact uh, propane and supply and demand and markets here in the short term and then extend it out to the long term? Maybe say, you know, if you can if you can go that far out to the end of the decade. Um, well, uh, we've been talking about it a lot already, how temperatures are going to pan out. Um, you know, I, I made the point that we're probably going to see a bit higher heating costs overall for consumers just because we're going to use more. Um, at the same time, uh, precipitation itself, it's a factor that we get every year uh, and it's, you know, not easy to predict. Um are in terms of transportation of propane, there are some large pipelines that ship it back and forth across the country. But on the retail level, most of the shipping is done via truck and via rail. So if roads are snowed in, there's a blizzard, the trucks can't physically get to propane consumers. Um, kind of a side related is that uh, long lines at the terminals for trucks to pick up their propane and they could potentially overrun their mandatory hours of service without an emergency waiver. Um, so we could see some periodic price dislocations. Um, you know, we saw it back in 2014, uh, with massive polar vortex that hit the Midwest propane prices skyrocketed. Um, so these are, we could see, Price dislocations, um, you know, they tend to get smoothed out over time, over an average period, um, but it, it, it could happen. Um, slightly longer term, um, I think the state of waterborne propane exports is going to be a big factor. Um, like I mentioned, exports, export demand is high. Um, kind of in the near term, I think we're looking this winter beyond uh, vessel availability to, to send that propane overseas is very tight. Um, most ships, uh, the VLGC, very large gas carriers, they're contracted out um, and freight costs are at record highs. Um, and this is due in part uh, to demand and also a 20 year drought in the Panama Canal. Uh, this is forcing them to restrict ship drafts. There's long lines of ships, including the propane ships. Um, so that means we're not going to be able to as easily funnel propane out to other countries in case of incremental demand. And, you know, that could have the effect of keeping more propane on U.S. shores. And that could potentially kind of cap, cap prices during big demand spikes uh, in the near term over the winter. Okay. Well, Tom, I'll ask you the same question, you know, kind of what are the wild cards out there uh, for the heating oil markets, not just, you know, kind of now this winter, but you know, kind of going out there? Well, I mean, there's this big red wild card called Russia right now. And right now, Russia is not exporting a lot of diesel, uh, probably because they have their own problems in supplying what they need for their own domestic needs with refineries that may be sort of falling into ill repair and make no mistake about it. I mean, the world has become 
dependent on Russian molecules, whether it be natural gas or whether it be diesel heating oil and to a lesser extent gasoline. You know, Russia has been a big supplier of uh, diesel to South America, principally to Brazil. And this month, for example, it doesn't look as though Brazil's gonna get their molecules from Russia. They're gonna have to turn to US Gulf Coast refiners. So that's a big wild card. You know, They may be back in gear, and certainly they wanna fetch as much uh, income as they can on their refined products. But right now they're uh, a little bit compromised. And I might mention that the other wild card is exports of distillate or exports of diesel in the United States. The last 10 weeks, we've exported about 1.2 million barrels a day. A ballpark number for domestic demand in a cold winter is over 4 million barrels a day. We probably can't make much more than 5 million barrels a day of diesel given uh, the crude oil slate that we have. So that could be a problem. Again, we are teed up for a parabolic move in diesel, heating oil, jet fuel and kerosene. Hopefully we won't have that. But last year we saw some moments where diesel fetched a price of $100 a barrel above crude. Uh, if you're a refinery right now, one of the reasons refineries are so prosperous is because of how much money they're making on the diesel and the jet fuel cut of the barrel. At this moment, you know, after a pretty rough week, they're not making much at all about gasoline. Hard to believe. But that's true. Yep. Yep. So um, thank you both. Uh, let's get, let's turn to some live questions from the audience here. So um, Chris, Chris is asking, and I think Jessica, this is probably more uh, for you. Is the propane production growth in by U.S. refiners due in part to the lightning crude slate and the large volumes of, of WTI or, you know, crude oil from the Permian Basin? Uh, I, I would say it's more production from the uh, Permian Basin and just natural gas drilling in general. Um, you know, I, I think it's been, um, I mean, everyone knows about the shale revolution, uh, you know, lots of natural gas and lots of advances in drilling and fracturing. So it's, it, it's more a, a byproduct of the natural gas processing and crude oil processing related to uh, the directional drilling. Gotcha. And, and Tom, I guess that's, you know, sort of that mismatch of crude you were kind of referring to uh, earlier on where the, the, the crude slate is lightening up here in the United States due to our domestic production. And as a result, we're getting more, not enough distillate out of it. Yeah. And hopefully uh, we might get some of that OPEC plus cut crude back in January or February. Uh I don't know, you know, I'm sure the administration's working on some back channels for that. But, you know, it's kind of like everybody talks about Arab light. You know, that's one of the crude oil blends that uh, you know, probably diminished because of the Saudi cuts. It's not light. It's actually pretty heavy. And it has a lot of distillate that comes out of it, a lot of diesel and a lot of heating oil. Same thing with the Urals crude that comes out of Russia. You know, it's got a nice... Uh, moderate sulfur, and it does create more diesel and heating oil. You know, very, very light shale crude. It, you get a lot of light ends, which are the gas liquids, which sell for less than the price of crude. So clearly, you know, refiners would love to be able to run more of these sort of protein distillate rich crudes, but 
uh, for the moment, the cuts have really uh, cut into that. Now, if we get more Venezuelan crude, uh, if we get more Iranian crude and some other heavies, you know, ca Canadian heavy crude, we might be in better shape. But that looks like that's probably a problem until at least the first quarter, maybe the second quarter of 2024. Okay, great. And this one uh, from George, Tom, is directed to you. Has there been a reduction in the number of distillate wholesalers in Northeast and Mid-Atlantic, or New England and Mid-Atlantic, I should say? If so, how will higher distillate prices affect retailers' ability to secure product for retail and commercial accounts? You know, there, there are nowhere near as many vendors and distributors of heating oil that there used to be. I mean, that is one big countervailing factor here is you don't have as much heating oil demand for those molecules, which are very similar to diesel as you did a few years ago. But still, New England is very, very dependent on it. And there are heating oil customers in states like Ohio and Minnesota and all the way down to the Carolinas. So you get a cold winter, uh, you have less options with distributors and, you know, you have high prices. I mean, unfortunately now, and I didn't see what the EIA forecast is, uh, but there, unfortunately right now, some people in the Northeast who are waiting for their first delivery of heating oil, they may see prices, you know, somewhere between four and a quarter and five dollar a gallon. And you could have a hyperbolic move. Um, one thing, you know, people go crazy about high gas prices and there's tremendous political pressure. But we saw in 2022 when diesel prices went uh, haywire, there wasn't that much of a reaction. There's not that much that regulators can do. Yeah, no, diesel didn't get much uh, attention until a certain TV personality came and said we were going to run out of diesel in 21 days or whatever it was. But but at any rate, um, another one uh, about the Northeast and 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 heating oil and, and, and bio, bio heat as part of that, Tom. So it's from Paul. Throughout the Northeast, several states have mandates, incentives for biodiesel blending to create bioheat. How do you see the use of low carbon liquids like biodiesel and renewable diesel impacting the heating oil sectors? Well, I, I mean, that adds to the problem. You have boutique fuels, and I, I understand the heating oil industry wants to switch to something with bio because less of a carbon footprint, but it can be a problem. Uh, when I talked about terminals and the lack of a lot of infrastructure and logistics, that's a real problem with the bio as well. So, you know, I mean, regulators could do something like eliminate some of the bio requirements in states that have gone to that. But it's just one more reason to sort of figure out that if we get uh, winter temperatures that we haven't had in, let's say, the last three years, we could have a problem in the Northeast. It's very good news for the bio uh, folks. And I think ultimately we'll see renewable diesel or renewable heating oil basically use uh, somewhere down the line when they get a low carbon fuel standard for maybe a Pennsylvania or New York. Uh, but right now it's just, you know, another boutique blend to worry about with the coal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, most of the renewable diesel that's being produced right now just makes a beeline to California and, and the West Coast to take advantage of those credit markets. But I think several other states, and you mentioned Pennsylvania and New York, are taking a good hard look at uh, implementing their own sort of uh, LCFS type program. Uh, Minnesota, New Mexico, and Colorado are three others as well who are, who are kind of considering a, a similar type program. Um, 
This one is uh, from from George. Uh, it's getting out there a little bit and a little bit, not necessarily off the beaten path, but it's never never too early to talk about it. But what's the outlook for oil prices in 2024? Will oil be between 85 and $100 per barrel? <laughs> well, that's a great question. And clearly, if I knew the answer to that, I'd be running my own hedge fund. I do think, uh, I think you have to get rid of some of the hyperbole. And, you know, there was a report from J.P. Morgan last week that floated $150 price. And Harold Hamm, the chairman of Continental Resource, mentioned the $150 price. Uh, I, I don't think that's in the cards in 2024. Now, I think we may have a cup of coffee at the $100 number. If U.S. and Saudi relations improve, we probably don't have to worry about triple-digit Brent crude oil. Um, and one can make a case for sort of prices dropping to about $70 a barrel or remaining in the 90s in 2024. You know, the, the, the latest scholarship suggests that we just, even with the high prices for crude, it doesn't represent that much of global GDP, you know, less than 4%. And it represented much, much more back in 2008 and then again in 2011. So these are the things that create a market. But I would say that the easy gains for crude are in the rearview mirror now. And it might be a little bit more difficult. Uh, I think the Saudis are very, very smart and realize that $100 plus numbers can bring in some sort of recession. You know, yep. an example of this, oil is screened higher, even with the U.S. dollar screaming higher. So what does that do in countries like India and Southeast Asia uh, that have to buy their oil in dollars? And they've seen the dollar go up in value and the oil price go up. You know, I would submit that they probably get more pain from high oil prices than people in the West. Okay. And uh, I think we have time for one more uh, heating oil reserves, Northeast heating oil reserves. Any any talk there? Any kind of scuttlebutt, bringing it back? You know, what, it, what's it's, uh, it's kind of a safety net that's made with gossamer thin fabric. That's the way I would describe it. It's, it's not necessarily a bad idea, but it's pretty small given the fact that, you know, in a cold winter, you could use four and a half million barrels a day. Uh, I don't think we're going to be adding to it, uh, and I don't think it really comes into play much uh, for the marketplace. And that's true for the uh, – there's a gasoline reserve, by the way, to it in the Northeast that really is just a tiny drop of, of fluid in an ocean of uh, hydrocarbons. Great. Tom, thank you. Jessica, thank you. That's all the time we have, Ron. I want to thank you both for, for taking your time out of your day to, to join us today here on Opus Energy Insights on Barron's Live. But please join us again on Monday. Barron's Deputy Editor Ben Levinson talks with Vanguard Chief Investment Officer Gregory Davis and Barron's Senior senior Writer Al Root about the market, the outlook for the Fed, where bond yields will stop rising, and what's next for the stock market. And join me again on October 27th for the next Opus Energy Insights segment here on Barron's Live. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Stay well. Have a great weekend. And if you're in the New York, New Jersey area, please try and stay dry. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.